welcome back to Plato's Cave. With me today, I have Glenn Pettigrove, who is a professor and chair of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow, where he specializes in virtue ethics and moral psychology. So Glenn, thanks so much for uh, being on the show today. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking about your paper um, specifically, which is called uh, Meekness and Moral Anger. It was published in Ethics in uh, 2012. So it's been it's been some time, but I take it you you remember the gist of it, at least, right? I should be able to reach those brain cells. <laughs> OK, good. It's a very um, uh, it's a very entertaining read. I don't I don't know if you intended for it to be uh funny but i mean there were comic elements in it especially in the beginning i mean i was kind of chuckling like reading it where i mean you were you were totally right that like sort of pre-theoretically um i i definitely had a very negative connotation to this you know um this characteristic uh meekness that you talk about you know you, you're trying to reanimate it and sort of breathe a new life into it um but it does it does have like a very negative connotation um pre-theoretically it does. And that might give one um, pause in the rehabilitation project. One of my former colleagues, upon reading the paper, said somewhat colorfully that I was trying to push shit uphill with a sharp stick. <laughs> um, as, as the rehabilitation of the English language term goes, I, He's probably right. I'm probably not going to sway lots mm. of people. But it is interesting that there is this space conceptually that we can recognize, kind of trait of mm. being slow to anger in this kind-hearted or charitably oriented sort of way. Mm. And to the extent that we use language for people like that, sometimes we use patience mm. to pick out that individual. And and patience covers some of the territory, but it a leaves out the kind of warm-hearted bit of it, mm. and it focuses in on the kind of temporal aspect of it, the waiting for the other, or waiting until we can be done with the other, or whatever. Um, and and that doesn't fully map onto the scope of the term in the 18th mm. century. Hmm. In uh, in the opening of that paper, I talk about translations of the Bible. And if you look at those translations, frequently the term gentleness gets substituted in hmm. as opposed to meekness in more recent translations. Um, and again, there's nice overlap there between gentleness and meekness. But gentleness, we tend to think of in terms of the, the big guy with soft hands that, you know, will, will be exactly the right person to have around toddlers mm. as they run about frantically in a room who can you know, scoop them up just before they do themselves harm or that they can bump into without hurting themselves or whatever. And, and again, we can see how somebody who's slow to anger might also characteristically be someone like that, mm. but we don't, currently, I think, have an English language term that picks out precisely the kind of trait that Hume and Hutchison and company had in mind mm. when they were talking about meetings. Mm. Is that, um, 
I guess I, I hadn't planned on asking this question, but like, I'm actually curious where, like, how did you settle on meekness as opposed to patience or gentleness? Or, I mean, was it from like biblical passages that first sort of like uh, illuminated the term itself? I mean, cause I, I mean, I, I hadn't used, I mean, the word meek hadn't exited my mouth in a long time before, before reading your paper. So I'm curious how you found that, that term specifically. Um, I'm sure there were lots of contributing factors, mm. but the one that caught my attention was a juxtaposition of reading this remark in Hume, where he's saying, meekness is something, the goodness of which nobody could possibly doubt. <laughs> and I went, oh, really? And then I stumbled across this footnote in Tom Beecham's edition of Hume's second inquiry, in which he is listing meekness alongside what Hume refers to as the monkish virtues and saying, you know, clearly Hume's opposed to these. And I'm left going, but wait, over here in the treatise, <laughs> he actually says quite the opposite. So what exactly is this thing he's talking about? Mm -hmm. Because my hunch would have been with Tom that meekness would have been amongst the monkish virtues. <clears throat> so I was surprised that Hume was using it in this different way. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I think I I mentioned this in the email, but so I read your um so I read your paper in the context of of taking this seminar on anger in general um, with Justin Coates, who I think you've met a couple times. Um, I I mentioned that um, that you were coming on the podcast, and he was excited. He said you'll be a great guest. Um, and and it's been like it's been very very interesting because we started out the seminar um with a lot of sort of um critiques of anger we read a lot of nussbaum's uh recent book um anger and forgiveness we read your paper we read a few others and then in the second half of the class we've been circling back around to the pro anger uh the anger advocates and it's it's been a very enjoyable experience cuz honestly this is it's a very live issue for me like I don't I don't think I would describe myself as an angry person but I'm certainly prone to you know anger and its cousins you know annoyance irritation resentment those sort of emotions and honestly I mean reading your paper and Nussbaum's book uh we read those in succession and it was like a one two punch against anger like you you completely convinced me that in many 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 cases this is just a venomous poisonous emotion that like we just don't there's almost no reason to feel. Um, and that's, I, I mentioned to you, like in section three of the paper, which we'll talk about, like you you move through a lot of these like common defenses of anger um, and why they're not so um, not, not so strong uh, as defenses. But I, I was, I guess I'm also curious, like, do you take your natural temperament uh, to be on the meek side or the angry side? Is this like, <laughs> I'm wondering how much of this paper is therapeutic for you, you know, trying to convince yourself to like, all right, let's let go of some of this. <laughs> Good question. So um, I recently published a paper on the trait of cheerfulness. Mm. And my wife suggested that in the spirit of full disclosure, I ought to add a subtitle to the effect of an outsider's point of view. <laughs> um, <laughs> because she isn't convinced that I'm by temperament characteristically mm -hmm. cheerful. Um, were I writing a paper just with the title Anger, I would not need to add that subtitle. Okay. 
Okay. So I, I would not suggest, nor do I think any of my family members would suggest that <laughs> I would characteristically be someone who is meek. Okay. At least not in the slow to anger sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you so you describe, I mean, in your sort of, you know, re reanimating of of meekness, you describe like exactly what it is. Um and and you contrast it with anger, resentment, wrath, rage, revenge, cruelty, and a persecuting spirit. So it's sort of the opposite of those. And then you give a more positive account of it and you say that someone manifests the virtue of meekness when he or she characteristically responds in a calm and kindly fashion to aggravating treatment. Um, so, was, so that that really kind of like, you know, highlights it for me. But I was also curious, I mean, so I'm thinking, because you, you go out of your way to say, well, the meek person, it's not that they're never going to feel anger, but they're going to be slower to sort of, you know, um, <clears throat> get on board the anger train. You know, they're not going to go quite as far on the train. Um, there and and it seems to me like you also want to say that when the meek person does get angry, do they also have some sort of like additional sort of like second order control over the anger? It seems like they can direct it in certain ways that that typically non meek people can't. Is that right? That's the thought. Yeah. Okay. So they they have a long fuse mm. before they blow up. Um, but even when that fuse gets to the ignition stage and they start to uh, feel angry, the meek person isn't just left at the whim of their emotional reaction, but mm. can still exercise a certain degree of self-control. So that even if feeling angry, they can refuse to display that anger or they can take steps to mitigate the influence of that anger on mm. their behaviors. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Because I was, I was thinking of, you know, it would be a, a kind of a strange psychology, but someone who just has a longer fuse, but then blows up just as much, you know, as the person who blows up immediately. And, and I, I, I yeah, that it, it struck me that you were definitely tending away from that, but I wanted to make sure I understood meekness um, specifically. I mean, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is it, I, I was in thinking about meekness, I mean, you you do a good job of sort of saying what meekness is not. And then you also give sort of a more positive account of meekness. But I was just sort of like, because I read this paper originally, maybe a month and a half ago, reread it yesterday. And I realized that I had sort of um, uh, t taken away from the paper, uh, almost sort of like a, a meekness as a, a negative virtue, not in the sense that it was bad. But in the sense that like it was it was almost like a disavowal of certain things as opposed to a more like um, positive proposal of active traits. Um, so maybe something like patience would also be like that, where patience is just sort of, you know, it's delaying a reaction, but you could be patient in very different positive ways. You could be patient uh, and then exact your coolness. Or you could be patient and then be extremely generous or or kind or whatever, right? So I, I'm curious. Do, like, do you do you um is that reading of anger off in any way from from the way that you talk about it in the paper? I'm sorry, not anger, meekness. I, I think that's a good reading of it. Okay. Um, I, I think it's I think of it as akin to the way that we characteristically think about courage mm -hmm. or about temperance. So as 
Aristotle conceives of these traits, we've got this underlying human propensity, say desire or fear. And when we're thinking about what excellence looks like for human beings, specifically in relation to that desire or that fear, then we are identifying someone's proneness to experience fear and to act in certain ways, even when they do experience fear. Um, but because we're defining the kind of trait in terms of this underlying emotion, there's a way in which it's being defined relative to, uh, if not the absence of this emotion, nevertheless, uh, a diminishment of that emotion. And similarly, when it comes to anger, it's not that Meekness is only defined in terms of its relationship with anger, but that's the starting point as we're thinking about what excellence in human beings might look like with respect to this propensity that we all have to become angry with others. Mm. And we then ask, okay, so who are the people that we admire and what do they look like with respect to this kind of quality or this mm. emotional disposition? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you, um, I, it was funny. I mean, you like in the first section, you so instantly like changed my, cause I told you I, I came in with like a very just pre theoretically negative view of meekness. Like I almost would have used it not as an insult, but certainly like a pejorative word. Like it, it just, it has like connotations of being weak or servile or uh, any number of these things. But then, you know, you, you say like, well, think about these, like, <clears throat> you know, kind of like magnanimous people that we like these just you know excellent characters you know you're thinking like in the social domain you have the example of like the the monarch who acts well for the sake of his kingdom the president who isn't like distracted by being maligned in the press um and then on on sort of like more personal levels you have like jesus socrates mandela the buddha like there are all these people who we just view as like excellent characters and when you actually think about how they would react to being wronged it is this sort of very uh meek uh response of being slow to anger and it i mean this goes this goes back to my other like there there are differences between the two because you or not the two but but just all of those examples i mean you could think of um you, you could think of someone who's sort of meek in that they they don't respond with anger um and the way they do respond is sort of like expressing sorrow or grief or loss. Or you could also think of someone who's meek and who responds with disappointment, um, maybe with sort of like um, uh, determination, you know, sort of gritting your teeth and like committing to changing what's been wrong. Um, but it is true that like when you think of just sort of excellent people, you do think of people who are, um, I think Nussbaum talks about this a lot. And it was, I, I saw... Um, echoes of it in your paper there's this sort of like assuredness in your own self-worth like you're not going to stoop to the level of being like simply reactive to someone else uh and i i found that like a very very convincing and powerful uh defense of meekness i think that it's one of the dimensions of excellence with respect to anger that aristotle's own discussion doesn't spend enough time mm -hmm. reflecting on mm -hmm. Because 
Aristotle's living in a context where saving face is hugely important, not only for the individual who's come in for disrespect, but also for all of the people who might be dependent on that person's patronage, right? Mm. So it's the case that when I insult you, it's not just how other people look at you that's at stake, but it's how other people look at the rest of your family and all of your business contacts, and right? <laughs> um, and, and because he's got that very different kind of social structure that he's working within, it makes sense that he's going to be pretty obsessed with saving face. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, if we're looking at a different social structure <clears throat> or at different individuals than Aristotle, <laughs> even within his social structure, like mm-hmm. Socrates, say, um, we can see people who don't uh, obsess about that or who recognize that they can maintain their position within the desired social space without an angry response, but mm. with some other response. And then there's this interesting question as to, to what kind of response that might be. And you highlight some of them. Mm. So things like disappointment in the other, mm. where, you know, I don't feel like I'm under threat. What's salient when I'm disappointed with another person is something about them, Mm. not something about me. Um, Similarly, when it comes to sorrow or grief, right? It might be a a grief that someone of whom I had expected better or for whom I had hoped better Mm. um, has in a pretty disastrous fashion shown themselves to have taken a turn for the worse. Mm. Um, or it might just be a sadness at the perpetual way in which human beings fall short <laughs> when given the opportunity to, mm. to steer the ship of state, um, <laughs> they routinely uh, mm. find themselves corrupted by the power they've been given. Yeah. And and so there might be a certain kind of sadness at this mm. perpetual weakness in human persons that could just as obviously, just as communicatively identify that there's some kind of moral failing mm. in question and identify to oneself and to others that I'm opposed to that way of going on, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's also interesting to think about ways in which we might not need to look for some other emotional orientation to do that work for us. Mm. So the Dalai Lama is somebody who suggests that anger is not one of the things he experiences. Mm. And, you know, that can be due to a lifetime of training or maybe many lifetimes of training. <laughs> yeah. um, it would take me more than one lifetime. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure the same is true for me. Um, so we, we may have somebody who's, whose orientation in this space is the result of lots of long, hard work, but who no longer needs to experience 
something like anger or disappointment because he expects human beings to behave in these sorts of ways, et cetera, and still is able to identify the wrong in question, communicate opposition to the wrong in question, mm. motivate action to prevent or correct the wrong in question, et cetera. Mm. And so we've got, as I think of it anyway, kind of um, emotionally hot ways of responding, which can include anger or sadness or grief or disappointment. And then these either emotionally cold or non-emotional ways mm. of identifying and responding to these things. Yeah. that So that makes me think of, um, I think I mentioned in the email to you. Uh, so another paper that we've read is uh, Amiya Srinivasan's famous paper, The Aptness of Anger. And she, um, she, she has this sort of very distinctive argument where she says, you know, like exactly in response to what you just said, uh, imagine someone uh, who who sees an injustice um, being done and they respond merely evaluatively, kind of like you were describing with the Dalai Lama. They There's nothing uh, in their uh, sort of cognitive uh, framework that would be objectionable. They're not discounting that it is a wrong. They're not um, thinking that it shouldn't have happened. They're not saying, you know, let's do something about this, but they're just affectively flat. There's just no emotion going on. And she she says, you know, she has this like very strong, inescapable intuition that, well, maybe there's not something sort of morally wrong with that person, but there's something sort of like critically deficient. Um, and, and I take it from what you just said that you that you disagree with that. I do. Mm. Uh, although I, I'm really sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there are certain kinds of wrongs that that I can't imagine. Mm not being moved by. Yeah. And, and so if all I'm doing is reflecting on my own psychological makeup, the absence of anger in me as I now am in response to a wrong like that would probably indicate a defect on mm. my part. Maybe I'm just not paying enough attention mm. on this occasion or whatever. Right. Mm. But if I really were, then I probably wouldn't be as calm as I currently am. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't want to take the limitations of my psychology to be indicative of the limitations of human psychology. Mm. And and when one looks at the Dalai Lama, I'm doing it from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. uh, all I've got is his testimony to go on with respect to what's happening inside and and then you know his external behaviors and how those map on to what I understand of characteristic human psychology. But I certainly don't get the impression that he takes these injustices lightly, that he's not serious about these things, that he's not motivated to intervene when he has the opportunity to prevent them or to intervene in order to oppose their perpetuation or to remedy their problematic effects, right? And similarly, when, when we look at uh, maybe a, a more amusing example, um, namely the example of Socrates, mm -hmm. when, you know, he's on trial and <clears throat> he's saying in response to, so 
seeing as you're guilty, how should the state respond? Well, state should put me up at state expense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then when his, in subsequent dialogues, when his students are trying to encourage him to flee the coop, um, head off to some other city state so as to avoid his execution, which is exactly what the authorities are expecting, and and he responds by refusing to do this. It, what's striking through all of his kind of lightheartedness is that he doesn't seem to lose sight of the moral issues that are at stake. Mm. And he doesn't seem to in any way show a failure to care that is commensurate with the seriousness of the moral issues at stake. He seems to be able to do each of those things and yet do it without manifesting anger at the injustice to which he's being subjected. Mm-hmm. And, and when I look at the fictional or partially fictional example maybe mm-hmm. of Plato, Socrates, and when I look at the living example of the Dalai Lama, I think, yeah, it looks like these guys are several steps ahead of where I am on this journey. And <laughs> maybe there are ways in which it would be good for me to be more like them. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's hard when you when you control for all of these sort of like instrumental benefits, its communicative power, its motivational power, its epistemic power, and then so, okay, so if you can get all of those without being angry, it's sort of hard to pinpoint, well, what would you be missing then? You know, it's 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 sort of hard to find this, like, this intrinsic value to anger. I mean, it's not, it's not pleasurable to experience. And if it doesn't need to be experienced uh, in order to get all of the upsides, and, you know, that's even not mentioning, as you do, all of the, all of the instrumental negative sides of anger, um, I, it's hard for me to sort of like, you know, grasp what what's missing there. And I mean, Srinivasan's argument also to me, like, I'm not sure why it points to anger specifically. You know, if it, it, there's like you've been talking about, there's many ways to be affectively hot in response to um, in response to injustice. So while it might be true that, you know, maybe people like you and I just don't have you know, we're just never going to reach in our lifetimes the the Dalai Lama standard. Um, you know, maybe, okay, well, so we're going to be affectively hot, but maybe we can cultivate other, like, affectively hot responses. And it just, um, and yeah, like I said, I'm very skeptical that there's anything intrinsically um, valuable about anger uh, in response to injustice. So my short response would be, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> Let me try and motivate okay, okay. Amia's position mm. in this discussion. Um, oh, is it Amia? Yeah. Oh, okay. I've been so. saying Amia. Okay, Amia. Thank you. Um so the position of the individual who has been subjected to systemic injustice is a position of somebody who carries a certain kind of burden mm-hmm. alongside the other burdens of being 
systemically discriminated against or uh, inappropriately disadvantaged, which is this extra burden of emotional mm. objection and all of the attention that an emotion like anger draws to itself and to its object um, and, and all of the, you know, increased blood pressure um, <laughs> yeah. that is disadvantageous for long-term health mm -hmm. and, and all of the kind of collateral expressions of anger insofar as, at least for most of us, much of the time, our anger doesn't limit itself just to its object, but spills over in mm -hmm. certain ways, right? And, and so there is this additional burden that those who've been subjected to injustice have to care, carry hmm. that those who haven't been subjected to injustice don't have to carry. And that's not the sort of burden that one can easily just choose to put down or not to pick up or, hmm. right? It, it takes, as we've been suggesting, long, effortful, maybe lifetimes worth of <laughs> activity to, to try and reorient our emotional life in certain ways and to correct certain beliefs that feed into our anger, et cetera. And, and so insofar as she's shining a spotlight on that, that's terrific, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but we might on the back of that notice that there's, there's something about caring about victims of injustice, whether it's oneself as the victim of injustice or others as victims of injustice, that naturally affiliates itself with anger. Mm -hmm. So that when we see an injustice, our response, as Hume characterizes it, is a response of displeasure. Mm. And that displeasure is characteristically accompanied by a desire that things go badly for the object of our displeasure. Mm. Right? Um, or if not that they go badly, at least that they not flourish as a result of this quality of character or this action of theirs that has been the source of this unique kind of displeasure that is moral displeasure. Mm -hmm. and, and part of what we've been dancing around so far in our discussion is the fact that there are other ways perhaps in which we can experience a displeasure in response to injustices or moral failings of character, et cetera. Um, but nevertheless, the, the most immediately recognizable one, the mm -hmm. one that is least likely to be confused by others, the one that already has the confrontational motivational structure in tow, mm. the one that is wired to help overcome the reticence mm. that we have to confront others because there's a certain risk involved in that, right? The, the one that brings a level of confidence with it to get us over that risk aversion hum is anger. 
Hmm. And so even if it's got certain other problematic features that go along with it, it's not crazy that a social species like ours has been set up to be set off in this way when confronted by those kinds of situations. Hmm. And so there's a whole lot of work that has to be done to get oneself into a different emotional orientation to respond well in all of these different dimensions um, in terms of epistemic accuracy, in terms of motivational power, in terms of communicative force, et cetera, um, to respond to injustices with anything like the same degree of effectiveness. Mm. So, okay. So I take it. Um, so, okay. What, what you were saying there sort of leads into what I took the framing of section three to be, which is you saying, okay, well, you know, I've kind of, I've tried to breathe a new life into meekness, but let's put it to the test now and let's give it its, its harshest test, which would be, okay, you know, let's look at meekness as a response, even in sort of the best case scenario for anger or the worst case scenario for meekness, which is what you call sort of instances of moral anger. So anger that is responding to, um, you know, I think uh, Nussbaum calls this well-grounded anger, Srinivasan calls it apt anger, but it's it's anger that doesn't have any of the facts wrong. In other words, you know, an injustice was really done. It was really done intentionally. Um, and so one, you know, okay, here's the test. Like if meekness is going to thrive, it has to be able to like thrive in these conditions. Um, and I take it that your conclusion is that many times, uh, there is nothing deficient about the meek response. That's right. Yeah. So I, I'm really constructing what I think of as an Annie get your gun defense. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, anything you can do, I can do better. Mm. So anything anger can do, I'm <laughs> suggesting, mm. can be done by some other constellation of dispositions, mm. at least as well, mm. in at least as many of these cases as I've canvassed, um, and maybe can do it better mm. than anger can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you talk about, and we've already kind of highlighted these, but you talk about there are typically four categories of defenses <clears throat> for moral anger. There's the epistemic defense, which is that anger perceives injustice and alerts us to it. It's sort of like a, um, a smoke alarm uh, in your analogy. Then there's the <clears throat> communicative claim that anger communicates important messages and it sort of adds a punch behind them. Uh, and the motivational claim that anger motivates us to defend what we care about. And if I was reading you correctly, it seemed like, so those three, maybe not entirely, but at least majorly, uh, in the in the majority, are concerned about instrumental pros and cons to anger. Um, whereas the fourth defense, the evaluative claim, which is that if we care about something, we're going to become angry when it's harmed, is often offered as a as an intrinsic defense of anger so it's like not worried about its effects i mean is that how you're reading your own paper as well so i might carve the territory up just in a slightly different way okay where uh clearly the communicative and motivational um mm. look like they're sort of prudential concerns okay or 
instrumental benefits of mm. anger. Um, but the how you group the epistemic considerations is an interesting question. Mm. So the way in which Srinivasan is conceiving of the landscape is in terms of fittingness or aptness. Um, and, and there are different stories about fittingness. On some stories of fittingness, what we're picking out is just accuracy. Um, and, and so an emotion is a fitting emotion if it's accurately construing its object. And if one conceives of fittingness in that way, then the epistemic concerns are going to be intrinsic mm. um, if one of the goods of anger is this good of you know accurately construing the moral facts mm. um but then you're right there is this other kind of thing which just picks out or um shines a spotlight on what matters deeply to us mm. and insofar as anger is an expression of what matters deeply to us. It's something that, that we can point to as kind of telling us something important about the agent and the agent's orientation. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, whereas the epistemic concern uh, looks like it's highlighting either something about the world Right? And our mm. beliefs are conformed to that something about the world. Um, or maybe it's going to be construed in terms of something about us, namely how perceptive we are with respect to the world, some cognitive virtue. Um, there's this other thing that gets deeper, that goes to the stuff that makes us good or bad friends, hmm. um, namely what we care about deeply, um, what, what really matters to us. And, and so you could carve up the, the epistemic and the evaluative as falling on different sides of the divide. Hmm. Um, I'm inclined to put them both in an internal sort of space, yeah. but acknowledge that the bit of the internal space <laughs> might be different. Okay. Yeah, no, that that does actually clear things up because I, I wasn't sure exactly where uh, the epistemic defense fit. So then, so, okay. So then when you move through and the vast majority of section three focuses on the epistemic, you're, um, you cite a wide array of, um, uh, of empirical literature, just showing that like all of these assumed um, <clears throat> advantages, these epistemic advantages of anger, you know, it's actually not as as um, clean a defense as people think because it goes wrong in all of these like um, characteristic ways, um, and it and it not only goes wrong often, but sort of repeatedly um, and and um, predictably in the wrong direction. So then, so I guess so all of that can be used as a rebuttal to both the intrinsic and instrumental ways to epistemically defend anger, right? I mean, it could be 
instrumentally wrong because it's actually just getting us to the not useful stuff because it's going wrong. And it's not intrinsically valuable because it's not uh, it's not having this sort of like internal connection uh, highlighting the thing that's wrong. Uh, is that a, a okay way to think about it? Yeah. Okay. Um, I might add to that second point that once we're aware of the epistemic limitations of anger, um, so I was just looking at a paper earlier today from 2020, um, another study hmm. looking at ways in which anger leaves one open to swallowing misinformation hook, line, and sinker, hmm. um, and, and doing so with greater confidence, yeah, yeah, yeah. et cetera, right? So yeah. the ongoing research program in experimental psychology is continuing to point in the direction of the epistemic limitations of anger. Um, but if, if I'm aware of the fact that my anger can and does systematically, sorry, let me start that over again. If I'm aware of the fact that anger does systematically mislead us, mm. um, that for ordinary individuals primed to be angry about reasonable things, um, once they're angry, then it interferes with their judgment in various ways. And then if we add in the fact that often when we're dealing with injustices, the nature of the injustice isn't obvious at the front end, right? There's a way in which we've suffered something that's thwarted <laughs> a desire of ours, but we might not yet know about the motivational structure yeah, yeah. that stands behind it, whether it was inadvertent on the other person's part or intentional <laughs> on their part. And if it's intentional, why it's intentional, what the intentions are, et cetera. Yeah. And, and whether this is a one-off instance or characteristic of them, all of which have an effect on the degree and nature of the anger that one might fittingly feel toward the individual in question. And so given those complexities, if anger is the sort of thing that goes off quickly, draws my attention, to this space hmm. at the very moment when I'm meant to be collecting the relevant evidence to determine what the facts of the matter are, <laughs> yeah. well, then it looks like I've got really good reason to hmm. try and reorient my emotional condition so as to keep this response from going off quite so soon and hmm. to maybe substitute other kinds of responses. Mm -hmm. Interesting things that has come out of this research is that sadness is an emotion that encourages people to pay much more careful attention to the connections logically between different steps in an argument. Interesting. Whereas anger okay. invites us to use more heuristic reasoning. And, hmm. and so if we can substitute in, once we recognize the liabilities of anger, if we can substitute in a different kind of affective response to the wrong that continues to reflect the badness of 
the wrong or the potential badness of the wrong, but that doesn't have the epistemic liabilities, that seems like something a responsible agent would work on in themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this was like another section of the paper that was just maybe inadvertently, but just very funny to read because I was just, I was confronted with like just instances of my own insanity. Like when you're working through all of this research, because it's so true. I mean, experientially, like, you know, you come home or whatever and the dishes are dirty. And if you have an angry disposition, well, you'll just begin like collecting evidence in a way that that conforms with like the worst possible reason why the dishes are dirty. You know, it doesn't matter that, oh, the the person was tired. They had a long day. Like maybe even it's your day to do the dishes, you know, and you forgot that. But you're just like you, you're you like sending the person to the gallows before you even like found out if they're guilty. Um, and like you say, it creates this like it, it creates this. um negative feedback loop where uh, you're angry. So you're disposed to interpret everything in a sort of um, deserving of punishment light, which then makes you more angry, which just, you know, just continues the cycle. Um, So, I mean, that, that part of the paper was, you know, like I said, that this seminar has really touched on like a live issue for me. And that section of the paper had me just laughing at my own insanity, you know, in the past. It's such a, um, like I said, I was wondering, I mean, one one thing that might be sort of like an experiential thread that connects a lot of this empirical work is that anger um, specifically seems to be this sort of uh, emotion that when it's felt, it almost always involves a loss of control. And so if you're if you're lacking control, that could be this sort of, you know, core feature of anger that explains the ways in which it characteristically goes wrong like that. Yeah, so a lack of control is often a trigger for anger. Um, it is it is the frequent trigger for hmm. anger when one is dealing with a bureaucratic environment. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And, and what's ironic is that anger is not the sort of emotion that evolutionarily was favored for dealing with bureaucratic environments. Mm. It was evolutionarily favored for helping our ancestors deal with small group confrontations, right? Yes. One-on-one yes. confrontations, yeah. Yeah. not the kind of paperwork that one needs to fill out in order to yes. become a permanent <laughs> resident of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so that, that sense of powerlessness, mm. that can be a trigger for anger is not always going to be closely aligned with where anger is going to function optimally. Yeah, uh, yeah. But there are also other things that you can notice systematically have an influence on our predisposition to anger. One of these is surprise. Mm. So there are lots of reasons why we might expect the the sage of many years to be less disposed to Mm. anger than their 18 year old self might have been. And some of these might have to do with physiochemistry. Mm. But one of the things that contributes to that is that they're not surprised by certain kinds of transgressions. Mm. These are the kinds of things that they, on the basis of experience, just expect people to occasionally do. And so part of what routinely feeds our outrage 
can you believe they did that? Yeah, is absent yeah. in their case because, well, yes, they can believe it because they've seen it before. Yeah, they've seen it all. Yeah. And a, a third factor that often feeds into our disposition to anger is fear. So imagine an example that I use in a different paper. Um, you're confronted on the school playground by the school bully hmm. who's hassled you on more than one occasion. And they've just grabbed your lunch and are about to make off with it. And so clearly there's an injustice and it's an injustice perpetrated by somebody who's got a certain disposition that they appear to be manifesting, uh, a problematic disposition that we might be inclined to see as a vice hmm. in that. But unbeknownst to the bully, your older brother is standing just behind them. <laughs> yeah. In that context, you're much less likely to respond to the taking of your lunch with anger mm. than you would be if you didn't have the big brother there. Now, that might point to the powerlessness Again, right? Mm. You're not powerless in this case because you, there's somebody who's got your back. Mm. But it's also the case that you're not likely to suffer the harm of this because your brother's going to get your lunch back. Mm -hmm. um, and and often, what triggers anger in people when they've been wronged is not just that someone has perpetrated an injustice. But it's also that this individual continues to be a threat to me, or I see them as a continuing threat to me. Mm. And, and so there can be lots of different things beyond just registering the normative facts about how serious the wrong is um, and how characteristic the wrong is of the wrongdoer that are also feeding into our responsiveness when we become angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that makes me think of, because you also touch on um, communicative downsides of anger, too, because, I mean, it's, you know, pe people talk about this upside being, well, like I said, it kind of packs a punch behind your message. Um, but, I mean, and, and you know, you pointed this out, and you made me reflect on it, and it, and it seems like, I mean, I just, again, my intuitions and experiences just side with you, where, well, you know, when, when you, when you're communicating some displeasure or dissatisfaction at something and it has an angry overtone that seems to really naturally invite an angry response or a defensive response or it's just fighting fire with fire and i've and i've thought about you know um uh when you can voice the exact same sort of concern or the exact same complaint but you do it in an aggrieved tone or you highlight the ways in which it sort of affected you it hurt you um that very typically invites a, an empathetic or an apologetic or a the focus becomes on the harm, not on like the person. Um, and so, again, like I was just, you know, you, you had me with the epistemic stuff and then you just, you know, you buried the hatchet in, in anger with the communicative point as well. This is one of the great things illustrated by Gandhi, illustrated by Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Is their recognition of the power of responding to injustices in a way that 
doesn't come naturally to us. Mm. But that can increase the effectiveness of our response and our ability to solicit sympathy from an initially unsympathetic audience. In King's and Gandhi's cases, part of the effectiveness was going to be on an audience of newspaper readers or television watchers. Mm-hmm. But even in the midst of that immediate moment, there could be this effect on the members of the British military who yeah. are present in India or the members of the Alabama police force who are present at the civil rights march mm. who can see the calmness of those who are saying through their calmness we should be taken seriously as human beings who've been done a wrong turn mm. and who are suitable objects of your sympathy and because of that can be suitable objects of legislative change to mm. protect us and ensure that we're given an equal standing within the community and the extent to which people will be motivated to make those changes when the individual shows themselves to be in control of their anger is just sevenfold larger than mm. when the individual in question is angry. Now, that's not to say there may not be moments where anger is exactly the tool that's needed to drive a message home. Mm. There might be. For anything I've said in any of the things I've published on this, it may be the case that there are specific contexts in which we need Malcolm X yes. rather than Martin Luther King Jr. Or maybe it's the case, as some have suggested, that part of the effectiveness of Dr. King was the result of mm. him being contrasted with Malcolm X. Mm. Um, and, and people embraced King precisely because they were afraid of this alternative. All of that's a story about the effectiveness of social movements, though, rather than simply about the moral status of anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the communicative section... I mean, it also made me think of this other problem with anger, where if if anger is supposed to be a rational emotion in the sense that it's responding to like a legitimate harm, well, okay, so then I mean it it that implies that like, well, so if anger has this sort of like communicative goal and it's a rational emotion, then when you secure the uptake in the other person, then anger should go away because its aim was realized. But In fact, it seems to work the opposite way, the stronger the anger is. Like if you think about when you're really, really angry at someone and you you launch into that tirade and they just, you know, they get it. They they get the uptake. They acknowledge the wrong. Anger should actually go away at that point. But in the cases in which the degree to which you are more angry is the degree to which anger stays around even when its goal is is accomplished. So, I mean, that to me, that uh, again, just points to the almost sort of insane nature of being angry. Like it's not even responding to the thing that at best it's responding to. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that just made me think of like this additional reason for, for, uh, I guess that, 
guess that remark is kind of in between the epistemic and the communicative downsides of anger. Um, but it, but it made me think of that downside as well. There is that experience of having a full head of steam yeah. and <laughs> expecting you you need that full head of steam to charge mm. through some obstacle. And then you discover the obstacle is not there, but you've got the steam built up. You're still going. Exactly. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like disappointment. That yeah. Conceded the point so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I've got 17 more reasons yeah. why you're awful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Can't you be more awful for just like a little bit longer? Like, you know, we've got to we've got to pound this point home. It's so true. It's <laughs> yeah, you're you're dissatisfied that you've actually like accomplished your aim so quickly. It's so it was so funny. Which yeah. highlights, I guess, one way in which anger isn't just mm. displeasing um, mm. or uh, something that we want to get rid of as quickly as possible. Mm. There is, as many have noted, a certain pleasurable upshot of anger. If you're choosing between just kind of feeling your injuries, mm. uh, accurately assessing the damage that's been done socially or materially versus, you know, having those injuries, but having yes. anger and the anticipation of setting things right in a certain kind of way hmm. that are still in play and that anticipation of serving one's revenge hot or cold <laughs> or, or righting the wrong at some later stage or confronting the wrongdoer at some point. There is a, a kind of pleasure that can go with that and with the imagination hmm. of getting one's own back in the relationship that can feed one's anger in problematic ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, that speaks to kind of the last point that, which is the motivational energy uh, that anger can provide. And I mean, yeah, you, th this is, I mean, this is kind of the most mixed bag aspect of anger for me, at least. I mean, cause it's, it's true. You know, you point um, in these ways in which even the motivational power of anger can go awry, you know, that you have that um, remark about it being um, counterproductive in martial arts, you know, there, I, I love the UFC, like the, you know, mixed martial arts league. And it's true. I mean, like when you see someone fighting angry, you know, it almost never works out. You know, they're they're swinging wildly, you know, instead of like a nice tight jab, they're just winging hooks. And it's true. It actually almost never works out well. And I, I'm also, I love to golf. And I mean, go golfing angry is if you want to shoot a high score, that's just, I mean, just golf angry, you know, when it, whenever, whenever like I find myself like angry, I, I, I'm like, okay, this is just not going to work out. Like no matter what else I do, this is not going to, to benefit but then i was thinking you know well there there is a tip there, there's a there's uh you know a couple of the other grad students and i um love to play racquetball and there is actually a very strong advantage to being angry if you're you know i, I i'm losing or whatever and i shouldn't be and i get extremely enraged like at myself but also at the other person a little bit and if i can manage to focus that then it becomes a real advantage, but it all comes down to whether or not you can focus it in, in my opinion. So again, I mean, even, I guess I'm kind of, you know, revealing to myself, well, even when there is an upside to anger, 
it's this very um it's like the difference between a bronco and and a a broken horse or whatever yeah i don't whatever the phrase is but like you know if you can saddle up your anger then it can become a tool but if it's this wild caught anger um then maybe it's not so much the case so yeah yeah i guess you've you've convinced me on almost every front then at this point <laughs> a friend of mine is a martial arts instructor and oh, okay. his experience suggests that anger can be advantageous in the ways you were just highlighting mm. for someone of marginal abilities. Oh. For someone who's really a master of the art form that is the fight, mm. anger is always going to be a disadvantage, he suggests. Mm. Um, for someone who has absolutely no knowledge of how to fight, anger's not likely to help them. Mm. Um, but for someone who has just a little bit of knowledge, yeah. <laughs> but not yet mastery, on occasion for a short spurt, anger might actually up their game. Mm. But as a strategy for excellence, it's not the thing you reach for, it's the thing you try and get rid of. Yeah, 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 that... I mean, like I said, I'm very convinced. Um, I, I came into this to this reading in the seminar in general, you know, pr probably having some, you know, latent, more pre-theoretical reasons to get rid of anger. But I mean, it it has been just trampled down by by especially your work. So, um, yeah, I I realize we're coming up we're we're over an hour at this point. So you've been extremely generous with your time. I just want to thank you again. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad that you guys have been exploring this fun topic and that you've gotten to enjoy doing so. Yeah, yeah, it's very fun. Um, so I'll link to, like I said, this this paper was um, uh, was published a while ago, but it's um, it's I think it would be really good. You know, some of uh, my audience is uh, not in philosophy but it's a very very accessible paper i mean it's very jargon free and when there is jargon it's explained um and i think it's very accessible so i'll link to the paper uh do you have any other um, sort of websites or upcoming projects that people should be aware of um in terms of upcoming projects um i'm i'm currently trying to pull some of the material from this and some other papers on anger and forgiveness together into a second book oh, okay. on anger and forgiveness. Um, so hopefully in another year or so that project will be done and dusted. Okay. Nice. And uh, today I, I just received a copy of the Routledge handbook of forgiveness that has been an eternity in the making, but that I was editing with Bob Enright um, oh, that okay. is, if not exhaustive, sure to be exhausting for the <laughs> average reader, but will cover in a more expansive way lots of these issues surrounding the sorts of emotional responses that we have in the aftermath of wrongdoing and ways in which we might navigate beyond them. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I also, I mean, on my to read list is um, uh, you have an essay in the um, 
collected volume uh, by Wormke, uh, Nelkin, and McKenna, Forgiveness and Its Moral Dimensions. Uh, that's also on my to-read list. Yeah, it looks great. It's a really fun collection. Mm-hmm. All of the papers in that collection, I think, are really top drawer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, great. Well, um, Glenn, stay on the line if you would for a minute. But thank you so much again. This was a ton of fun. My pleasure.